Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a jubilant morning here in the capital following England's 2-0 victory over Germany at the European Championships yesterday is Steve Bennett. Steve is the co-founder of Woof & Brew, the pet drinks company based in Cambridgeshire. This business produces healthy drinks and treats aimed at keeping dogs happy and healthy. Um, Steve helped launch the company back in 2013 and its products are now stocked in over 2,500 stores in the UK and available in many other European countries. Um, Steve is also active as a consultant at business consultancy Dedico and founded publishing company Dog Friendly Limited back in 2002, which publishes the well-known Dog Friendly magazine. Uh, Steve, very warm welcome to you today and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. It's a real pleasure welcoming you on, Steve, and certainly is a lovely day for it. The national mood is high. And I'm sorry to sort of dull it down a bit by starting on such a difficult subject, but we should address the elephants in the room here, and that is the fact that we are still living under COVID-19 social restrictions, as we record this in late June, and that's been the case now for the best part of 14 or 15 months. Now, I appreciate that we're nearing the end, and we could see sort of a return to some form of normality very soon. But looking back over this whole period by and large, how has the pandemic affected you and your business, would you say? Yes, it's affected us um, in many different ways. And um, the two businesses that I'd like to refer to that I'm involved with uh, are Dog Friendly and Wolf and Brew. And they've both been affected differently. Um, If I look at Wolf and Brew, firstly, that is a... Uh, in the FMCG market, I guess, it's looking at um, selling products to pet owners through retailers um, in the UK and abroad and also online. We found in March last year when the first full lockdown uh, was announced that our business literally fell off the edge of a cliff, uh, Wolf and Brew, which was very frightening. Never been in that situation before to come into the office and realise that uh, well, the, the phones weren't ringing and, well, not coming into the office, sorry, having to work at home, but listening mm. to the fact that the orders weren't coming in. Um, I'm pleased to say that didn't last too long. That only lasted probably a couple of weeks, and I think it was probably a shock reaction to buying essential products for your dog, so the, the, the food um, and obviously as our treats and supplements, um, and they they came back on online, thankfully, about two weeks later. But on Dog Friendly, uh, Dog Friendly is all about supporting uh, dog-friendly businesses around the UK, so predominantly in hospitality. And that, of course, was uh, a market that was hit and that is still being hit um, very hard by uh, the pandemic and the varying lockdowns. Um, and we we actually saw a dog-friendly pick up um, in, in business straight after the first lockdown, and I think that was partly because dog owners... Um, both uh, old and new, because you'll have seen in the press a lot of people took on dogs during the uh, the lockdown. Mm. Um, I think a lot of them were looking up at what they could do to enjoy after uh, the lockdowns had been released. So we saw 
uh, our membership increase over that period of time. And we had businesses who who uh, who were closed um, that were talking to us about how they could welcome dogs and their owners perhaps as new customers once they were able to reopen. So dog friendly, we saw an upturn. Um, Wolf and Brew, as the uh, pandemic progressed, we saw revenues um, increase. Actually, we, we, we were very fortunate. We were in a market that, as I said earlier, more people took on dogs. So we saw business increase over the following 12 months. But we were hit by um, other challenges, and, and we still are. And they related more to being able to source uh, raw, raw materials to make our products and then being able to actually ship them and distribute them. So we we, we have seen uh, challenges from that point of view. And going back to Dog Friendly more recently, where the hospitality has been able to open, even if not fully, mm. um, they have embraced the fact that dog owners are potentially very good uh, customers and more businesses have opened their doors to dogs. So we've we've seen a big increase in pubs and uh, high street retailers as well, opening their doors to dogs as well as their owners. And that's very good news for us and uh, obviously for our members as well. It certainly is, yeah. And it's very encouraging that hospitality is certainly welcoming dog owners in with open arms in that sense. And just because, of course, you mentioned then during the conversation about sort of the shipping side of things and also issues within the supply chain, that's kind of combined itself with sort of the Brexit issue, hasn't it, this year, that's sort of come into full force back in January. And I appreciate that Wolf and Brew does export to other countries. So have you sort of found any obstacles on that side of things at all? Oh, yes, um, very much so. And um, obviously we, we talk with our peers within uh, this industry and other industries, and uh, it does vary, but I would say most have had uh, a big, impact or have seen a big impact as a result of uh, Brexit. As of the 1st of January, we stopped exporting all of our products. Um, we, next week, are shipping our first um, delivery out to a distributor uh, in Europe. And so it's been nearly seven months of no exports at all. Um, and I've got my fingers crossed that that delivery will actually get there because we've, we've, we've had a lot of issues. Uh, our, our products, the Wolf and Brew, um, are actually of most pet products probably the easiest or should be the easiest to export. But yeah. uh, as our products don't have meat in, for instance, so a lot of the veterinary requirements um, don't apply. But unfortunately, many countries have um, have read the rules differently or interpreted the rules differently, and so we've had to work our way through them with each country that a lorry drives through as other distributors have had to do as well. So it's had a big impact on our revenue and um, and the amount of work involved in trying to sort it. So, yes. Yeah, and it's been a double prong challenge, hasn't it, with regards to sort of the challenges of the pandemic thrusting toward business as well. And one thing that you did mention there also, Steve, was that you adapted in the early days of the pandemic to the home working side of things. Is that something that you're still doing and you're still sort of adapting to that sort of remote working framework? Yes, it is. I have to say, I'm, uh, um, I've been accused, and rightly so, uh, by the team that I work with that I'm old fashioned because uh, prior to the first lockdown, I was not a fan of home working. I, I much preferred to have the team uh, in the office. And 
I have eaten my words, and um, and the team know I have, uh, and we we are now. We, in fact, we have just uh, rene- renegotiated contracts. We, we don't have a big team; it's only a small team, but they all work very hard. And we have renegotiated contracts so that they now can work from home going forward, um, and we'll use the office as a, a place for people to come in once or twice a week to have uh, meetings. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, working from home has has proved me wrong, and actually it's worked very well, very well indeed. Mm. Yeah, it certainly hastened something of a digital revolution, the pandemic, hasn't it? And I think what we're seeing now is that that hybrid approach that you talked about there is probably going to be very much the status quo for a lot of office-based businesses moving forward, isn't it? Because as good as, of course, working from home might be for the work-life balance, mental health and well-being side of things, I think we've also taken for granted somewhat that social interaction of being in the office around our colleagues as well. So having that option is also an important thing. Yes, definitely. And um, I mean, my my background has predominantly been selling um, in the whole of my career, and I've enjoyed uh, and and I think needed the face to face interaction with a customer to sell to them. I like to look someone in the eye, and I think they like to look me in the eye. Um, and that's one thing I'm still struggling with. I, I, I do hope that whatever the new normal is will mean that we can still visit customers uh, and negotiate uh, face-to-face. We we have tried to uh, visit some of our uh, customers in the last sort of, uh, four weeks, but most of the larger retailers uh, are still not welcoming um, face-to-face uh, visits. And I wonder if that, that unfortunately may stay that way. I don't know. It'd be a shame, I think, because as good as um, Zoom and Teams and uh, uh, all the other uh, video conferencing systems are, I still think uh, there's, a, there's a big part of face-to-face to, to conclude um, sales. Uh, and I, I hope that comes back. I do hope that comes back. Yeah, exactly. I think we do need that because I think sort of remote interaction can only go so far. So there'll always be a place for those in-person events um, rather than doing it virtually, those in-person meetings just to try and conclude business deals. I think that's very, very right. And you talked about having sort of got to grips with that remote working side of things, starting to sort of trust your team more to begin working flexibly. Are there any other sort of key takeaways or key lessons that you would say that maybe you've taken on board from your experience of managing through this pandemic? Yeah, I think a couple of things. One, um, we were able to uh, take advantage of the furlough scheme uh, yeah. for our business. We we had uh, we've got a, uh, a couple of sales people on the road, and as they were unable to. Uh, be on the road in the certainly in the first lockdown we were we did uh, and were very grateful to be able to take advantage of the furlough scheme um, and, um, later into the uh, lockdowns we we were we became flexible or took advantage of the flexible furlough so that they were able to gradually come back to work all of our staff uh, will be back um, tomorrow in fact the first uh, of July so everybody would be back full time from Tomorrow we still have a couple that are on uh, part-time furlough, and that, that's mm. been. We wanted to make sure that those people that were on furlough still felt part of the team, and that's been quite difficult if you follow all of the rules of the furlough scheme. But we 
have kept in contact with everybody and we do have a weekly um, telephone call with everybody to make sure that um, they were okay because, uh, you know, we, we've all struggled through through the pandemic from a, uh, from a point of view of not interacting with some of the people that we've uh, interacted with for years. So um, and we managed to do that and um, I'm pleased to say that everybody has uh, stuck with us and uh, we've tried to uh, stick with them as well. So, so communication has been mm. uh, well. It's been a different type of communication. I mean, uh, prior to March, it was uh, sit in the office and talk to each other. Now it's been telephone, Zoom, um, email, um, just to make sure that everybody still feels part of the team that we took years to put together. Um, and I think, I think it's been important from my point of view, or not important to write with, I'm not quite sure actually, but, but some of the, the work that I had not been involved with for many years, uh, I suppose the, the coalface, if you like, the, the packing of orders and um, the processing of customer inquiries, I actually got very heavily involved with that over the last 12 months. And that's been very cathartic, I suppose. Um, I've, I've identified why um, some of the processes that our team were moaning about. I now understand why they're moaning about them, and we've managed to work together to uh, to change those processes. So um, I've enjoyed um, mostly. I've enjoyed uh, getting to understand how the nuts and bolts of the businesses of the businesses have been running, uh, and talking to customers, understanding more about what they want. And we've we've even changed some of our products now because. We've got much more involved with uh, our customers, so I, I, um, I actually think we've uh, we've benefited from some of the uh, challenges that we've been put through. I hope we have anyway. Yeah, it's sort of embedded a real resilience into business that's sort of innovated and pivoted at an unprecedented scale to keep themselves running and help keep the economy and the wider country running exactly right. And just while we're on sort of um, the government support measures, which of course have been huge for business, such as the coronavirus business interruption support loans, the uh, the furlough scheme, of course, that we spoke about at length there. Um, when it came to sort of the guidance side of things, because there was a lot made of sudden lockdown restrictions being reimposed and maybe some businesses being left to interpret things for themselves. When it came to sort of operational sorts of things, did you feel that everything that you were sort of getting fed through was making sense or was it sort of quite difficult trying to get around certain things? I think in the circumstances, um, whatever my political beliefs are, I actually think um, it was incredible uh, what was done. And I um, am very grateful for the support that we uh, received. I can only comment on uh, our own businesses. And from our point of view, I I did feel that we were supported and what was achieved in a short period of time under extremely difficult circumstances, I think, was was incredible. I, um, I... if we were to talk about uh, Brexit, and that wasn't your question, but I think that what's happened because of Brexit has has been very, very uh, difficult, and that communication around that has been quite the opposite um, and has been uh, atrocious, to be honest with you. But um, we've worked through that. But then, no, going through, going back to the pandemic, no, I, I think um, having to uh, respond to something. Uh, or an event that was so uh, catastrophic, I suppose, uh, in such a short period of time. I think everybody 
who was involved in that uh, deserves our thanks because we, yes, I, I, I think they, they did very well. And in hindsight, of course, things could have been done better or differently, but I can say that about anything we do in our business. Um, hindsight's a wonderful thing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the help we were given, and I think it was, I think it was uh, good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they've really, really stepped in and sort of helped keep business afloat during this time. And that is something to be sort of appreciated and indeed celebrated. Um, and then moving forward over the course of the next year is hopefully we can now look forward to moving out of social restrictions over the next three or four weeks. Um, where do you see your businesses heading as we move out of lockdown, Steve? And um, what are your ambitions sort of for the economic recovery? What can you sort of see happening there? Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a uh, $60 million question. Um, I, If I look at both businesses, Wolf & Brew and Dog Friendly, um, I believe that um, that people have recognised uh, more of the benefits of having pets in your life, having dogs um, in your in your life um, from the point of view of uh, company, as in uh, 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 counteracting loneliness. Um, we're, we're, we're working with a well, we're hoping to be working with a, a charity that um, helps train dogs to support um, people with mental health issues. Um, and it's absolutely fabulous to see, um, very heartwarming to see the benefits that that can bring. Um, so I think um, Dog Friendly especially will benefit from the fact that uh, everybody uh, in, the, in the marketplace is recognising the value of having a pet in the family. So I can see dog friendly growing um, very well over the next couple of years with staycations, I think, are here to stay um, for at least the foreseeable future. And dog friendly is all around, all about uh, helping people find places to go uh, with your dog. So I'm very confident about dog friendly. And the same with Wolf & Brew. I think um, we're a British company. I'm hoping that um, people will continue to look at buying British um we work very hard to try and support uh, the retailers that we've got for the stockists uh, in the UK and we'll continue to do that. And I hope that the high street will uh, come back to some sort of normality and whatever that normality is, I hope the retailers can thrive within it. Um, I'm very positive about that. Um, international, I I am positive, but I think we've got uh, challenges uh, still to overcome. Uh, we're we are due to be listed by a large retailer in America for uh, the holidays, so for Christmas. Um, I hope we can achieve that. There's a lot to do, but um, we're working hard. And uh, we've, as I mentioned earlier, we've appointed a distributor um, in in the Czech Republic, actually, for our products to be distributed around the rest of Europe. That's the delivery that's going out next week. I've got my fingers crossed. Um, I don't like running a business with fingers crossed, but on this occasion, uh, we've done everything we can. It's now uh, in, the, in the lap of the, the gods to uh, hopefully see that delivery arrive. And I'm very confident about the fact that the market that we're in, and we're very fortunate to be in such a market, is, has got huge potential for, for growth. Um, and I, I am confident that we'll be able to take advantage of that. Um I think from our point of view, it's uh, what is going to be uh, the new normal. And, and I, I, I'm certainly not going to predict um, what that is. I, I just hope that we can work within it and 
and seen both businesses prosper, and therefore uh, our stock is prosper as well. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting time, isn't it? And I certainly wish both of your businesses, Wolf and Brew and Dog Friendly, all the best over the course of the next few years. And let's keep a close eye on retail as well, because it does seem from the lockdown restrictions being lifted gradually that there is the appetite for people to get back onto the high streets and enjoy the novelty of that again. And indeed, the impact of staycations could be significant, as you say as well, Steve. So big times for business. And I think as we start to see exactly how the economic recovery is shaping up, I'd love to catch up and have you back on the show with us to talk about how your businesses are getting on because I've thoroughly enjoyed having you with us today. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you. And I hope we can come back too. Thank you very much. Fantastic. And do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on. We're almost there, but we're not quite out of the woods yet. And you. It was a pleasure for me welcoming Steve Bennett, co-founder of Woof and Brew and Dog Friendly Limited, onto the programme today. Uh, coming up next on the programme, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Of course, already a legend amongst West Ham United and Stoke City supporters, Sir Jeff is most well known for that famous hat-trick that he scored at Wembley in the 4-2 victory over West Germany in 1966, which saw England lift the Jewel May Trophy and become world champions for the first and to date only time um i hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as sir jeff relish joining us on the show to talk about some of the highlights of his career and leave a message for our wonderful nhs who've been fantastic during the last 15 months that's coming up on the program next And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want wanting to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. 
Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner, England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've off, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee. Uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it, it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about. Uh, but certainly, what I was going to do, which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward. Because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely, yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense, because the game is unfinished. But that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to... Uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making... This, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in uh, important in a sense to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- 
terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. We're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. 
So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's just three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually 
but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school living age and uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football it's just that that's how it, how it happened uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying come and have a trial at this club or that club uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, Tell them to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game. The sort of went messing about, but between the two, I had one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game funny. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games 
for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, up, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for 
for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if you wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was, he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about 8 o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you'd been used to back in England? Um. Well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And, of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the... Uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Sadly, mm. they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my... Uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had. So um, yes, it, uh, it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and. Um, uh, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I uh, enjoyed the experience, and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that? 
you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yeah, so I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always jokingly say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years not, not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. When um, you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad, and I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.